we could read the prayer of the first hour as we did last time in our other discussion. Um, let me just find it in my in my book. Well, Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may behold the unapproachable light and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments by the intercessions of thine all immaculate mother and of all thy saints. Amen. The first hour. Um, if anyone doesn't have this book, the book of hours, uh, you should probably invest in it. Uh, of course, there is the great Orologion, which is the great book of hours, which in its English version, at least in the HTM edition, is like, it's like a brick. It's probably bigger than my fingers. Um, but this is a nice little um, summary of just the hours. And um, it's, it's a very good... The, the early Christians prayed the service of the hours. That was the, their daily prayers. Um, and of course, matins, monks also prayed the hours. Matins and vespers were also monastic services that became very popular among um, the laity. So uh, today is, it's an appropriate day to start the life of the uh, Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. Uh, we're reading the edition published, compiled, written and compiled by the Holy Apostles Convent in Colorado. If anyone hasn't seen it, this is the, what it looks like. Um, they, this convent has done a very good job in translating many texts, many hagiographical texts. Um, in particular, but, but this particular book is actually a work of their own scholarship. And it's an appropriate day because today is the leave-taking of the entrance of the Theotokos into the temple. The leave-taking is the last day of the feast. The feasts of the church, the major feasts, the feasts of the Lord and the feasts of the Theotokos last many days. Pascha, very famously, lasts 40 days, right? We have the first week, bright week, which is, uh, of course, the, every day of bright week is Pascha. Uh, but then 40 days later, you know, we have the entire period of the resurrectional period. Um, Christmas is also uh, a long, has, has many days. Uh, and the last day of the festal period is called the leave-taking, which is the last day, the apodosis, the day that we say uh, goodbye, let's say, uh, to the feast. We don't really say goodbye to the feast. We, we, um, uh, we celebrate the feast again. Everything of all the liturgical texts of the feast are said on the leave-taking. It's also the feast of the uh, great martyr St. Catherine, anyone who has anyone that is named Catherine, Katerina and Katerini, um, many years to them. Uh, St. Catherine, of course, is, is a great martyr of the early church and an important example um, for us today in her confession of faith and her, and her virtue moral purity. The life of the, uh, of the Theotokos, of course, is the archetype of, of moral purity uh, for all of us Orthodox Christians. Um, there is a quote that from St. Ambrose of Milan um, that's on page Roman numeral one in the preface that says, Mary's life is a rule of life for all. Um, 
the, the life of the Theotokos is the pattern after which everyone could reorder their life. Uh, not just young women, but also men and anyone who is interested in their salvation. Uh, what I was saying earlier is that uh, we can discuss a little bit about what is covered in the preface, some technical information, but it's nonetheless interesting. It's a discussion of the sources uh, that are used to that were used to compile the life of the Theotokos. Um, and then we can talk about the format, and then we can call it a day for today and jump in next week um, with the first chapter. So uh, the sources, the scriptures and ancient writings. Um, basically, we have three sets of texts, three types of texts that are the source for our knowledge of the life of the Theotokos. The first, uh, of course, set of texts is the Holy Scriptures, the Gospels, the Epistles, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, and the Apocalypse. Um, those texts contain um, uh, a lot of historical information, although their purpose is not necessarily historical. Um, the purpose of the texts of the New Testament uh, is for us to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved through that faith, right? So they're, not his they're historical to the extent that they cover historical events, but they're not historical to the extent that, or their main purpose is not historical, to the extent that they're not detailed like a historian is detailed. Uh, trying to get every single fact in, trying to get every footnote in, so, so on and so forth. The, the, the Holy Scriptures, especially the four Gospels, are basically, if, if you want to think about it in terms of like a drawing, they're just the outline, the sketch. And, but enough information for us, uh, enough information for us, spiritually right, speaking. Um, and of course, the, um, the Theotokos appears in the four Gospels. Um, uh, but there's not a lot of information there about her. Of course, in the Gospel of St. Luke, there is the narrative of the Annunciation, right? How, how the Theotokos um, received the Word of God in her um, and how the Word of God became incarnate in her, took our flesh, took our nature from her. Um, there's a second body of texts that are called Apocryphal texts. Um, and apocryphal in Greek means hidden. They're not, they weren't used in the public. One, one definition is they weren't used in the public services of the church. So apokrypto is the Greek verb to hide something. Um, they're not hidden in the sense of the secret information in there that if you read it, you'll know the real truth and you'll be able to contradict the priests. That's not what the apocryphal texts are about. Um, they're not, first of all, they're not secret. They're available for anyone to read if they really want to. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but they're not part of the public services of the church. Um, there are a lot of conspiracy theories uh, connected to apocryphal texts. And the conspiracy theories all come from people that... Um, want to show that they're smarter than the church or want to um, find excuses for not believing in the teaching of the church, 
right? And so they'll say, well, the church is, is hiding stuff. Um, that's not the case. The church does, does not hide the apocryphal texts. Uh, again, the apocryphal texts are just not used in the ministry of the church, uh, at least not in the services. However, there are, there are two types of apocryphal texts. There are orthodox apocryphal texts, and then there are heretical apocryphal texts. The orthodox apocryphal texts, um, the most famous, which we're going to talk about, is the Proto-Evangelium of James, um, where everything in the text is orthodox. There's nothing that contradicts the teaching of the apostles or, of the, or, or later of the Holy Fathers. Then there are heretical texts. The most famous of the heretical texts is the Gospel of Thomas. Um, some of those texts may have started out their existence as orthodox, but then later they uh, were interpolated by heretics. Heretics changed the text. And it was really easy to interpret, interpolate texts in antiquity because you know, there were no printing presses. People had to copy out books by hand. And so if you got your hand on a book, right, and you wanted to pass it on to the next generation, you would either copy it out yourself or you would hire a scribe who would copy it for you. Heretics did that, and they often changed the texts. Um, on the other hand, there were other heretics that wrote their own texts from scratch that incorporated their crazy theories about God and about Jesus and uh, about his ministry in the world. Even those texts sometimes have preserved historical elements from the teaching of the apostles, but they've mixed it together with the delusion. So we have to be, this is why you have to be careful with apocryphal texts, because some of them are orthodox, some of them are not orthodox. The ones that are not, not orthodox mix together truth and falsehood, right? Um, the life of the Theotokos is uh, contained in a, in a group of apocryphal texts that are um, orthodox uh, and that uh, have a lot of details that were preserved in the oral tradition of the early church. Um, as I said, the Proto-Evangelium of James is perhaps the most prominent of all of them. I'm looking at uh, page Roman numeral nine, IX, um, where there's a list of these in the second paragraph. Proto-Evangelium of James, Pseudo-Matthew, the Gospel of the Nativity of Mary, the Falling Asleep of Mary, and the Passing of Mary. Um, the Proto-Evangelium of James is attributed to St. James, who was the brother of our Lord, according to the law, not according to the flesh, Right? Because James Iacovos, St. Iacovos, was the son of St. Joseph. Um, and um, St. Joseph was our Lord's legal father. Right? But he wasn't his, obviously, he wasn't his biological father. So they weren't brothers according to the flesh, but according to the law. Um, that's why he's called Adelphotheos, the brother of God. Um, the Proto-Evangelium is attributed to him, but it, it was actually written about 100 years after St. James. So uh, it was most likely written around 120, 130 AD, somewhere there. That's the best we could, that's the best guess that I've read. Um, so in the first half of the 100s. And at some point it was attributed to St. James. 
It's not necessarily the case that the original author lied and attributed to St. James, but at some point it was attributed to St. James because perhaps it was thought that the information given in there, um, uh, the information given in there was the only, uh, was the, uh, could only have been given by relatives, right? Someone who knew the Theotokos. There was, um, yeah, Galina, that's a nice point. He was, St. James was also the only of St. Joseph's sons who shared his inheritance with Jesus, right? Because the, the other sons of, of uh, St. Joseph were, um, they, they were from another, they had another mother, right? Because of uh, St. Saint, Saint Joseph's first wife. Um, so the text wasn't written by St. James, but pious tradition people thought that perhaps they were, when they were reading it, they were trying to guess who wrote it. Um, and the suggestion was James. So um, there's also a, a pseudo Matthew. Um, whenever you see pseudo at the beginning of an author's name or a text, um, it means that the name is falsely attributed. The false attribution is not necessarily a result of deceit. Uh, sometimes it's a result of confusion in the manuscript tradition, because remember, these books were all copied out by hand. Um, and over hundreds of years, errors um, were introduced. Um, so the original author didn't necessarily want to imitate or impersonate St. Matthew. But it's, uh, it's a book that um, is attributed St. Matthew, but it's not really by St. Matthew. Those types of books are often called pseudepigraphical. Pseudepigraphical means that they have um, a false attribution. Um, there's a, a very famous example of a pseudepigraphical text, and those are the writings of uh, St. Dionysius the Areopagite um, that modern scholars think was were written later, but that the author used the, the name of the saint, St. Dionysius, as a pen name. That's the scholarly tradition, the, the scholarly um, position on the question. Uh, but there are many other pseudepigraphical texts, uh, most of them not as important. Um, and um, nonetheless, the church used these apocryphal texts as sources on the life of the Theotokos. It also, these texts also demonstrate that there was um, a lot of interest in the life of the Theotokos from very early. And this contradicts the Protestants who say that all, all this stuff, um, uh, all this stuff is, um, you know, it, uh, not necessary, that it's late, that it's invention, that the early Christians didn't believe in the Virgin Mary and all these other things. The Proto-Evangelium demonstrates that from the first half of the second century, from the first half of the hundreds, people were, uh, early Christians were very much interested in the uh, details of the life of the Theotokos. And that interest only grew. Even the fact that in the four gospels, we have references of the Theotokos means that early Christians, A, knew about her and B, were interested in what she, had to, what she did and what she had to say, right? Um, a second, a third rather set of sources is the hymnography of the church. The hymnography of the church, if anyone has ever spent uh, 
any amount of time in Vespers or Matins, and you've paid attention to what was said, you know that the hymnography of the church is a rich source of teaching. It's unending, really. It's really unending. It's that rich. Um, and uh, we should spend a lot more time um, uh, in, in Matins, in Vespers and Matins, and a lot more time studying those texts. Um, most of the texts that we have in our Vespers and Matins uh, come from the period between 500 and 1400 AD, right? The earliest is, one of the earliest authors is St. Romanos the Melodist. Um, and then uh, that, one of the latest authors to write these liturgical texts, um, go all the way down into the 14th century and in the, into the 15th century, St. Mark of Ephesus, for example, wrote liturgical texts as well. Um, we're talking about the prosomia, the doxastica, the idiomela of Vespers, the canons of Matins, uh, all these texts, the um, very important names that, um, that appear almost on every major feast are St. Andrew of Crete, um, St. Germanos of Constantinople, uh, St. John of, uh, St. John of Ropus, who actually contributed a lot to the text of the um, Theotokarion. Um, and many, St. Germanos of Constantinople, I think I mentioned him. Um, St. John of Damascus, of course. Um, and these texts rely on both the gospel narratives and narratives coming from some of the Orthodox Apocryphal books like the Proto-Evangelium of James, right? A lot of the details that you read about in the texts, in the, in the hymnography. The second thing that the hymnography does is sometimes they amplify what's in the sources. The amplification can come in different forms. The amplification could come as a meditation on a particular scene. It could also come uh, in the form of a historical fictional speech, which is not really fictional from a theological point of view. From a historical view, yeah, the Theotokos probably didn't say those words exactly, but they are a poetic way or a rhetorical way of meditating on the theme of a feast. And so you have, uh, for example, on Great Friday or Great Thursday in the modern Tipicon, we have what the Theotokos said at the base of the, at the foot of the cross, right? Uh, and so the hymnographer is expanding on the theme uh, and on the emotion and on the sentiment that she would have felt. Um, another example of this amplification is the introduction of dialogues. If you look at the canon of the Annunciation, it's every other troparion is like a, is a dialogue between the Archangel Gabriel and the Theotokos, back and forth. And there's this dialogue: How could this happen? What is it? What does it mean? Uh, how you know, uh, so on and so forth, um, throughout the entire canon. Uh, and so the, the hymnography of the church has historical has historical information in it, but it also has theological information and sometimes that theological information theological interpretation is arrived at through this rhetorical amplification um, the rhetorical amplification 
shouldn't scandalize us. There are major saints that actually introduced this method. Um, saint Ephraim the Syrian and Saint Romanos the Melodist. Um, and so it's uh, this, there's a long venerable tradition. And of course, it's done with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. It's not as if they're just inventing poetry. Uh, they're also being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, connected to the hymnography of the church are, is, are also the homilies of the Holy Fathers on the Theotokos. The homilies on the Theotokos start especially in the uh, 300s. Um, and they increase in frequency and in length and in beauty as we go on through Christian history. The most famous of all the Marian homilists uh, is St. Proclus of Constantinople, uh, who was a disciple of St. John Chrysostom. And, um, uh, and of course, we have St. Germanos of Constantinople. Some of the hymnographers themselves wrote homilies, St. John of Damascus, uh, for example, all the way down to St. Gregory Palamas, who is perhaps the greatest of the later uh, Marian homilists. Marian, of course, refers to uh, Mary, the mother of God. Um, and so um, the, the biography here of the Theotokos is going to rely on all these sources. Uh, also, the author here refers to iconography. And the iconography is mentioned for two reasons. One, in that like um, hymnography and homiletics, it too draws on uh, information that comes from the apocryphal tradition, in, in particular from the Proto-Evangelium of James. Um, and, um, but it also gives us interpretive keys, right? Because the, the, the hymnography of the church is parallel to the iconography of the church. Hymnography is preaching, melodious preaching, right? Whereas iconography is visual preaching. It's the visual catechism of the church. Um, and so the uh, icons, and, and perhaps in the future we could actually look at um, some iconographic programs from some ancient Byzantine churches. The most famous of all of these is the are the mosaics in the narthex of the Church of Christ of Hora, also known as the Kariye Jami, which is the Turkish name, because they turned it into a jami, a, uh, a mosque. Um, but it's the cathedral or the Catholicon of the monastery of Hora. And that has, that's, that church has very famous icons. Uh, the most famous, perhaps, is the icon of the resurrection, the fresco of the resurrection that's in the above the would have been above the altar of the side chapel of the funerary chapel. Um, it's the the one that where you see you know Christ pulling Adam and Eve from the tombs, grabbing them from the the wrist, um, and it's in the same building. But in the narthex of that building is a very beautiful mosaic decoration of the ceiling. It shows all these scenes from the life of the Theotokos. Unfortunately, that, that church has been reconverted into a mosque and uh, President Erdogan is busy 
covering up those frescoes and that all that artwork. Unfortunately, after a few decades of being visible to everyone, I was, I visited in I think 2013 and uh, I, I was deemed worthy of seeing those um, mosaics. Um, the last thing I wanna say here as far as the um, preface goes is that um, all of these iconography, the poetry, the homilies are all connected to the feasts of the Theotokos. The feasts of the Theotokos began to populate the uh, church calendar gradually over a number of centuries, right? Um, this process was guided by the Holy Spirit uh, as the church expanded and more people became Christian. And then as, as, as the uh, Greco-Roman society became fully Christian, um, the, the providence of God right, enlightened the Holy Fathers to institute certain feasts. Sometimes these feasts were ancient, but were only practiced or were only observed in one part of the empire, in Palestine, for example, or in Constantinople, or in Rome. Those are the three usual, or Antioch, three or four usual cities that contributed their feasts to the uh, formation of our, of our Orthodox calendar. Um, and a lot of those feasts uh, became the, well, all of those feasts became the occasion for the very rich hymnography and homiletics and iconography. So they kind of tie everything together. And the way that the book progresses is through the, um, the various stages of the Theotokos' life. So it's chronological, obviously, because it's a biography, um, all the way through um, the main chapters. And then with the appendix, we have some, uh, a number of appendices that, that look at the more information in uh, theological analysis, Theotokos and the church, comparison between the Theotokos and the church, um, the gospel reading of the Theotokos and the Theotokos as mediatrix. Um, so I encourage you to read that preface if you haven't already. It has a lot of technical information, but I um, tried to summarize it in a way that Help you, helps you make sense of it. Because when we move throughout the text, we'll see references to all these uh, hymns and homilies. One thing that would be a nice project would be for someone to compile all of these hymns and, and um, homilies into a companion volume so that you could follow, you could read the chapter and then read the actual texts. That would be a nice project for someone to work on. Um, as far as the... As far as the format is concerned, as far as the format is concerned, so I, I, I did this introduction, but I don't plan on, on, on lecturing. Uh, the, um, this originally started as a discussion group, and we want to return to that model. Um, but I think our goal here, so with, as a discussion group, we need to focus we need to focus at least on two things. One is understanding what it, the text says, right? Uh, before we develop an opinion, we have to know what the author says. So uh, questions, of course, are always 
welcome. You could prepare, prepare questions before you come or as they occur to you as we're discussing things. Um, and the second, so it's what does it mean? What is it saying? And then the second question is, how does this apply? Right? How does this apply? Because Orthodox Christianity is not just theoretical. It's also applied. Uh, it's not just um, theology. It's also praxis, correct praxis, orthopraxia, correct practice. Um, and so the, the life of the Theotokos is one of our main sources for practice. So let's think about that. Um, so that was my quick presentation. Um, uh, and uh, perhaps now we could turn this around, flip the classroom, as they say, um, and discuss um, perhaps um, either you could ask questions about what I just said, or if you want to discuss um, the Feast of the Theotokos, the feasts and the texts connected to the, to the life of the Theotokos, as you've experienced them. Uh, and um, no, as you've lived through them. Maybe we could say, we could, we could ask what our favorite feast is. I know that's kind of lame, but sometimes it creates interesting discussions, those types of questions. Okay, Wait, so was I, favorite feast day only of the Theotokos or? Well, you could talk about your favorite feast day in general, but the, since we're talking about the Theotokos and we're talking about a biography, maybe we could, we could talk a little bit about uh, what our, they're all important. Don't get me wrong. Just because, just because I really love the entrance of the Theotokos. Um, that's my favorite feast of the Theotokos. Um, why is it my favorite feast? Well, because multiple reasons. We have very nice idiomila and luxastika. We also start the Katavasias of Christmas. So we're chanting the Katavasias of Christmas on that feast. Uh, and so there's a nice, there's a very interesting um, sort of juxtaposition of the themes of the nativity with the infancy of the Theotokos, right? And the Troparion itself talks about how her entry into the temple is a preparation for our salvation. Um, and the last thing is St. Gregory Palamas has an amazing homily on the entrance of the Theotokos, where it talks about the Theotokos and her way of life in the temple and how she discovered um, noetic prayer while she was in the temple as a child. Should we go around the room? Basil, you want to start? I think you're muted. So I just have a question, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, there was an icon once of the Theotokos that uh, miracle was attributed to the icon flipping over after a, um, a bombing in a church. 
Uh, I think this was maybe 18, late 1800s. I'm not sure if um, <laughs> with that icon or not. Uh, I'm not familiar with the icon, but there are, there are many types of icons that have um, the Theotokos, well, many icons of Theotokos that there's the famous, uh, in the monastery of Atopedi, the, the stabbed Theotokos, where the pirates drove a, 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 a sword and the icon started bleeding. Um, you know, there, there's um, also of other saints. At, again, I'm on Tatos. I've, I've entered this icon. It's at the uh, Romanian uh, skeet of St. John the Forerunner. There's the icon of St. John the Forerunner where the Turks broke into the church and then the, 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 the saint became really angry in the icon. And the Turks saw that transformation in the icon and they ran away. Um, bullets ricocheting off of icons, which they're not supposed to, supposed to, because they're wooden, right? Other stories like that. Yeah. There's also the feasts of the icons of the Theotokos, which is, which are different than the, their, we might call them minor Marian feasts. They're minor because uh, they're often uh, local. Um, they're of a local nature. And sometimes they spread throughout uh, uh, an entire country or throughout the entire Orthodox world. Um, so that's like a second level of feasts of the Theotokos. Um, so I don't know, I don't think you guys have the same, the tiles in the same order that I have them in. So, so Galina, you wanna go next? Sure. Um, if we're talking feasts of the Theotokos, oh man. I think I would have to go with Dormition. Mm -hmm. um, mostly because it's just, I love the hymns that we do during then. Yes. Um, my dad reposed during that feast time, so. Oh, he did? He, on yeah. the feast? Not on the feast. Um, we celebrated it that year on Sunday, mm -hmm. and um, he reposed two days later. Wow. So. My no, was that correct? My aunt. I think the after feast was Sunday. Yeah. My aunt just reposed on the feast of the entrance last week, which yeah. is, uh, the, you know, when people repose on feast days like that or in the festal periods, yeah. um, it's, it, it shows that, well, it's, it's an indication, perhaps. We have a hope that they found grace and that the Theotokos, or, uh, you know, interceded for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he loved, he loved that feast too. That yeah. was one of his favorites. Um, just again, the like him, you know, the hymns that go from it. And we did um, a great balance of like both Byzantine and Russian chant with that feast. Yeah, yeah. Like we pulled in the um, Byzantine Katavasia and then did other anyway. So those are amazing. Yeah. So that feast yeah. are um are amazing. Maybe we can also look at some of those texts as we move through the chapters of our book. Good. I would say that's my favorite. <laughs> the Theotokos. Good. Uh, Christina, you're on my screen. Me, Christina? Yes. My uh, my favorite piece of the Theotokos, is that is that where we're at? Is the joy of all who sorrow. Um, I know it's not a major feast. It's one of her icons. Yeah. But it's meant a lot to me over the years since um, 
probably was like 11 or 12, a nun gave me this icon when I was um, going through my parents' divorce. And I was actually pretty depressed, but I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I prayed that she said, pray to this icon and the mother of God will take away your sorrow. And I did, and she did. Um, And I found like going through different various periods of my life when I've, you know, struggled with whatever difficulties or a depression or sorrow or whatever, um, that I really find such peace when I turn to her and, and her feast, always this feast of the joy of all who sorrow, I sort of forget it's coming. And then, and then when it's there, it's always very timely for me. Do you know, I wake up and I go, Oh, it's the joy of all who sorrow. Right. And, And it's always right, right when I need it. Um, Right. So that, that's my favorite. Yeah, that's that's a the, the, that itself is the, just the title of the icon. Of yeah. course, that's also the 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 cathedral that Saint John Maximovich built in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't help but think that it's providential that he was enlightened to name the cathedral after that icon, given that in America, especially today, there's such a epidemic the real pandemic is the epidemic of the soul uh and uh but an epidemic of sorrow and depression and loneliness across the country and uh, especially now given the situation that we're in and uh, confusion but the Theotokos is the antidote to all of that yeah um she, or she provides the antidote the antidote is christ but then she gives us access to christ and the, the icon gives such a beautiful image of it all the the various people turning to her and then her, she's sending angels with God's help to each of right, them. Right. Right. That's exactly. so beautiful. Yes. Good. Uh, Joanna. I don't, I really don't have a favorite, but I would go along with what you did with you, your, your feast of the temple only because I just found out, I just read about all the things that transpired and how she got there. Yes. I know uh, from what I understand, um, uh, the, her mother did not want to bring her to the temple at at the request of God. So God gave her mercy for one more year. But mm-hmm. the fact that she entered the temple and she was able to um, nurture herself in in the holy of holies um and how um she was an example of giving up everything and learning everything and and, and it tells me let me let me go retract one statement it's i was i have a very difficult time sometimes with the mother of god um just by just by my nature but now that i find out that what she has done and everything that she has done for her preparation to receive God, um, I see the importance of, of, of this particular part of her life. And then there's the other part where the devil used to, the, Lucifer used to go around telling everyone you're going to bear the, the, uh, the Christ child and, and, and he really didn't know where she was. Um, really really fascinated me to the point where God puts place people and humans where they need to be to fill their well and to right. prepare themselves to do his glory. 
Right. Well, the Theotokos was the uh, end point of the entire tradition of the Old Testament. She is the fruit of the Old Testament. Uh, the, and the fulfillment of many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And certainly it's appropriate that she was in the Holy of Holies because the Holy of Holies represented her, prefigured her. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot to be said. Theologically, she personifies Orthodox theology. That's why if you ever look at a canon, the, suppl the supplicatory canon, the paraklesis that everyone reads, because it's all the hymns are for the Theotokos, you don't really see this. But look at another canon. Look at the canon, let's say, of, of St. Catherine today. Uh, you're going to read first, there's going to be the uh, canon of the entrance. But if you go to the saint, uh, at the end, you'll see a Theotokion. Theotokion is always in the last position, everywhere, in the canons, in the vespers, in matins. Uh, whether the kathismata or the praises, uh, Theotokino is always in the last position because the Theotokos is the final stamp, the episphragisma, the personification of all of Orthodox theology, everything. Um, so she personifies everything. Thank you. Um, I just want to make a note. My yeah. first love, though, was the Annunciation because yeah. she said yes. And yes. because we were, it's the second Pascha and I, I just missed becoming Orthodox by two years. And the next time it's going to happen is in 2075, and I will not be here. But that was the my Kirion and Pascha, the, 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 the two Pascha's together. Yes. yes. But I do appreciate every once in a while where Annunciation and Pascha are on the same weekend. Right. And sometimes but the Annunciation is transferred to Pascha, depending on the typical that you follow. Good. Thank you. Irene? Um, I don't have a favorite either because I love them all. And if I could have another child or a grandchild, I would name her Paniotti, uh, or Paniota, Maria, yes. <laughs> Mary, something, you know, Despina. But um, I, if I had to pick, you guys all picked them all the Dormition, the uh, entry into the temple. Um, and as far as the. Um, the mini Marians, whatever you guys call them, <laughs> the um, the, the mother God nurture of children. Yeah, yes. the other the the the, the uh, feast days, yeah. the icons, the icon feasts. Yeah, yeah, the icon feasts, and uh, and um, so quick to hear. Yes, and um, also the joy of all the sorrow. That's another one of my yeah. favorites. Those three of the uh, icons. Um, multiplier of wheat, the myrtle tree. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 it's just hard to pick. So, right. but um, and uh, the unfading bloom. Yes, those are all. Those, yeah. Very beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, so yeah. all those. Um, you know, it's said that yeah. the Theotokos was the um, was and is and remains the most beautiful human woman ever. Yes, and that. When um, when people were confronted by her, when they saw her, the the reaction was awe because of the, yes. the depth of her beauty, um, which is the we're in a fallen state, right? So we don't have a proper relationship to beauty in general because we're all messed up from our passions and stuff. But the beauty of the Theotokos was one that inspired awe, just intense awe. Yeah. Uh, the same thing with the Lord. Uh, he was 
Of course, he's the new Adam. The same thing could be said of Adam and Eve, the original humans, right? The, the first, our first, our, our first parents, um, because they're the handiwork of God himself who made them and always makes beautiful things. Um, and so it's not surprising that we have all these feasts of her portraits. Yes. The feasts of the Marian portraiture is a, it's a very beautiful thing. Maria, thank you, Irene. Maria. Mm -hmm. Somehow I knew it was going to be their first or last. Um, <laughs> so I would have to say that I agree that all of the feast days are special, but um, I would choose the Dormition of the Theotokos um, only because during that period, I just feel, especially with all of the paraclesis that we do every night in preparation to celebrate the feast day, um, is very calming, peaceful. Um, and really makes me feel even more connected with Panagia during that time. Um, but then just recently, my mom actually had come across a post on Facebook. I'm not 100% sure how accurate this is or where this information was pulled from, but perhaps we'll find out when reading this book, um, that during the Dormition, um, on that feast day when Panagia uh, had passed away, Christ had come and received her and brought her back up to heaven. And when she went back up to heaven, um, all the angels and the Heruvim, they everybody went up to her. She was sitting on a throne and they all went up and approached her and uh, received her blessing, greeted her, welcomed her. But when Panagia saw her parents coming to greet her, she, they were the only ones who she actually stood up for and walked towards them to greet them, wow. which also um, shows how much she honored her parents and shows us the importance of doing the same towards ours. Right. Honor thy father and thy mother, the Ten Commandments. This is the law. She heard this when she was at the temple. St. Gregory Palamas says that she, when she was a small child in the temple, she would listen to the readings very closely because just like in the Orthodox Church, uh, in the Church of the New Testament, the Church of the Old Testament, they had scriptural readings. Um, does, but there's always a Marian feast that is a feast of the Theotokos that's forgotten. There's a forgotten feast of the Theotokos that everyone always forgets. Does anyone, does anyone remember it? Prove me wrong, it's not forgotten. 13 arrows? I'm sorry. The arrows, the arrows, um, that's a sad one. The arrows, uh, where they show the arrows in our heart. Oh, well, close. Close, okay. Not an arrow, but a sword. <laughs> sword, uh, it's a but, sword. St. Simeon's words. Swords, okay, for, yes. For, 40 days after Christmas, right, Ipapandi, the meeting in the uh, where the Theotokos brought our Lord to the temple after 40 days. And, um, that technically is a feast of the Theotokos, although it's got a very strong Christological component too. So it's also a feast of the Lord. Um, but remember the the hymn, the Tropadion is about the Theotokos, rejoice. Right? Um, so that that is a feast of the Theotokos that's often forgotten because the other ones, of course, are focused on uh, uh, moments of her life. Um, but of course, that's also a moment of her life. The, St. Simeon, the God-bearer, of course, revealed to her what would happen. Um, 
Very good. Do All you right. know, uh, Father, is um, there an actual feast date for when the Mother of God goes to visit Elizabeth and the greeting takes place? And um, in the womb? is that like an actual date or is it just... I it, well, it's the it is the gospel reading of every almost every Marian feast. Right. Um, I don't think there's an actual feast because yeah. the um, the synaxis of uh, Saint Zacharias and Elizabeth are is uh, later. It's the uh, uh, it's after the Nativity of Saint John, or the day after the Nativity. Okay. Um, uh, and so, but, you know, even when we do the supplicatory canon to the Hathokos, that's the gospel reading. Right. Um, well, when we were in Jerusalem, we went to that site mm -hmm. and I have an icon from it because. Oh, nice. I mean, like every place that you went there, it was just so amazing. Um, but uh, well, yeah. but I was thinking, I don't remember a feast day, actually. I don't that. think there's a particular feast day. I could be wrong, unless it's the feast day of St. Elizabeth, right? Um, uh, yeah if you want to consider that the feast day. Uh, and I wonder if, was it a particular church mm -hmm. uh, that was, I wonder if they celebrate, when they celebrate that church. Remember, a lot of these feasts originated in the same question that we're describing now. There's a church at a place where this happened. Right. We need to have a special uh, feast for this church. And then that feast spreads across the, the, the Orthodox church and, and becomes established as part of the, uh, the universal calendar of the church. Right. So very good. All right. So I guess we'll uh, thank you everyone. Uh, we'll, we'll continue next week.